I was so entrenched because of the compulsions that I was engaging in, both physical and mental, for such a long time that it was hard to kind of break apart some of the beliefs that I had. Um, But I got better. I really did. I got better. And when I got better, I didn't want to be quiet about my story anymore. Um, And that was a huge shift for me. I was watching students from all different faith backgrounds that were fearful of speaking up about their mental health and faith communities. And I felt like I had an obligation as their chaplain to say, actually, these past few years, I've been seeking mental health treatment at night and you can too, and it's okay. Um, And that was terrifying. It was, it was, what are they going to think of me in this public role? My mentor told me I would lose everything in ministry. And um, I didn't. It was the opposite of everything I thought. I started hearing from families, oh, Chaplain K, we can we can finally tell you what's going on. Can we tell you about our child's diagnosis? Oh, and how do we talk to their pastor, their rabbi, their imam? It was nothing like what I had expected at all. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and we are continuing the series during Mental Health Awareness Month, and we are talking today about OCD. And I'm curious, what does OCD mean to you? Does it mean that you can't go to bed without a clean counter or maybe that your closet has to be color-coded and organized or that being on time is already being five minutes late? So, or maybe even that your food doesn't touch. Well, let me tell you that none of these things is having OCD. OCD is an acronym that stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, and not surprisingly, it is within the category of anxiety disorders. It can impact people from all different backgrounds, and it's not gender-specific. However, two-thirds of people actually develop this disorder as a teen or a young adult. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder is made up of actually two different parts, one, obsessions, and the second one, compulsions which can cause significant stress in someone's life, like a lot of overwhelm. Obsessions, these are unwanted or repetitive thoughts, urges, or images that just don't go away, and they can cause a lot of anxiety. For example, I was supporting a beautiful lady. She was a senior who was struggling with uh, her recent move into a retirement home. She wasn't eating well. She was agitated and disruptive in group settings. Now, At first, people suspected dementia or that she just wasn't transitioning well to this new environment or this new living space. Uh, But after a psychiatric consult, she was actually diagnosed with OCD. And her primary obsessions is that she would accidentally hurt someone when walking by them. Or, and this is, was especially prevalent in the dining room. And she was worried that she would be, she would drop her knife or spill her food, her hot food on other people. And these thoughts caused her an incredible amount of anxiety and stress that that came out as behaviors as she tried to avoid it and and prevent herself from, from hurting someone, which she wasn't going to, but this was the obsession thought. Now, the second part of OCD is compulsions. 
These are actions or repetitive behaviors meant to reduce the anxiety caused by the obsessions. Now, it's important to understand that compulsions are a way to cope with the obsession. The person will likely experience a lot of distress if they can't complete these compulsions. And, and I saw this a lot in, with the, uh, an individual that I was working with who had um, cleanliness compulsions. So the repetitive behaviors uh, weren't preferences that he, he wanted to be clean, but he had to wash his hands and do count different things and clean different ways and use different chemicals. He had to do those things because that was the only thing that reduced the anxiety of these obsessive thoughts. And these compulsions can be harmful. This gentleman that I was supporting, he would clean his hands until his skin was worn completely away. And we saw um, his flesh and even down to the bone in some areas. This disorder isn't to be taken lightly or, or undermined or minimized. But like ment- all mental illnesses, this disorder does not define the identity of the person, nor does it determine their future. Reverend Katie Odoon, our guest on today's podcast, is diagnosed with OCD. And while this disorder touches every corner of her life, it doesn't define her. Katie is an interfaith chaplain for individuals all over the world. She is an ultra marathon runner with the goal of completing 50 races. She is a doctoral student and founder of Faith and Mental Health Integrative Services. It's an organization helping individuals with OCD live into their faith as they navigate treatment. Katie grew up near Baltimore into a loving Christian family and went to a private school that had an arts focus. And, and this focus drew people from all over the area that had different backgrounds. And this exposure to different faiths as a young child has been instrumental in her work as an interfaith chaplain. Yeah. And I think I didn't realize, again, how neat it was until later on getting into interfaith work and and looking back and saying, oh, wait, when I was seven, I was, you know, doing this with my friend's temple um, or Jamatkana. So it's very, very cool. Yeah. So you said you grew up in um, a Christian family, in a Christian home. And that's that's cool. Are you an only child? Yes. So I'm an only child. Um, I grew up in the Episcopal church from, from birth and had two um, amazing, awesome parents who were incredibly supportive throughout my journey and particularly throughout um, my OCD journey that I know we'll talk more about today. But mm-hmm. um, it's for me, um, even before they knew what that looked like, they they saw this child who was very focused on being perfect and on um, not doing anything wrong. And even from an early age, my, my parents always talk about, you know, as a five or six year old, I would call them into my room at night to confess worries that I had of things that I thought I did wrong in kindergarten or in first grade. And um, in retrospect, I am so incredibly thankful for, for them and their support through that in the midst of times that they didn't know exactly what was going on for me. Um, but, but grew up in, uh, again, very loving household and um, grew up in the church and um, eventually went to college at Elon in North Carolina and um, had no idea that I would end up getting into ministry whatsoever going to that experience. Um, what did you go to school for? Yeah. So I was a, I was a division one athlete. So at that point I was really focused also on cross country and track um, yes. and then went to school, started as an exercise sports science major and- okay. Um, then shifted to communications and then shifted to math, I think. Oh yeah. 
we did the whole spectrum and then ended up as a double major in human services and religious studies before going to seminary. That is a mind twist. So athletics to math to human services. What, what drew you to human services? Yeah. So, um, when I first started at Elon, um, I had put everything into, into running and, um, kind of my collegiate career that I had all of these big hopes and dreams for. And I actually broke my foot my very first week of, of that and was in a really difficult roommate situation at the time too. And was having just, it was, it was really, it was really tough and, um, had a very intense coach who was not very excited that I was injured. And, um, finally at that point found, um, actually a church that I felt really connected with. that was kind of getting me through everything on a weekly basis. And, there was a particular Sunday where my coach said, oh, you can't go to church because we have a recruit and you need to be there for kind of the, the recruiting visit. And um, I ended up going and being told that um, because I was injured, my crutches couldn't fit in the van of where we were going and that I wasn't welcome and that I would need to crutch back to my dorm. And it was like a mile and a half. So I ended up missing oh my goodness. the church experience that I'd been looking forward to. And I was like crutching back in the heat, like a mile and a half is like this new college student injured and was just so upset. And Ended up in the midst of that passing another church, which actually was a UCC church, which was later where I became ordained, and they were getting ready to have a service start. So um, I went inside, and in that through that experience, ended up um, meeting some pretty amazing people, including someone who invited me to go and do cross country coaching with um, a group of of um, of individuals in foster care and experiencing poverty, and um, it really transformed what I wanted to do was the work with that kid, with those kids that I really kind of found God in a different way and in a way of service and was asked to go in and preach about the church that I had been going to about that experience. And I remember standing up there and saying like, huh, like, okay, actually there, there's something here. I feel a pull here um, to really support individuals who are experiencing hardship in their spiritual journeys. So went, changed all my majors to religious studies, human services, and never looked back. Yeah. It's incredible. An off chance that you were pushed away or rejected from what your goal. Talk about like close a door, Lord, and <laughs> and open another door. Like that was literally the car door, the van door slammed shut, and then the church down the street opened. Like that is the coolest. You never hear those stories. Or maybe I don't often hear those stories. It's, you know, I don't often get to talk about it. So I appreciate that you asked because it's it's neat to think like, wow, that was a long time ago. And it's so yeah. neat that all of that, you know, looking mm-hmm. back has been so just instrumental in, in where I am now. And like you said, yeah. those doors, you have no idea what's closing and what's opening. <laughs> God's faithful, isn't he? Yeah. God Regardless, is like you were focused and extremely talented in the track and field area, but you had so much life and, and hope in you to, to offer others. And so I think that was really cool that God something, planted something in you and, and saw something in you. I'm curious, when you were at that church, were there mentors or or people in your life that helped foster that? Because that's a that's a that's a big leap from um, 
you know, feeling pushed out of the athletics and into supporting, supporting those who are marginalized and impoverished. And, and, and I would think that you would need some coaching or did you always have that innate giving and supportive approach in you? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think a couple different areas, there were, there were such amazing, um, supporters in my life at that point where, one, um, I, when I jumped into honestly the religious studies program, I got really connected to the chaplaincy staff at, at the school, which very much helped me later down the line. But also my religious studies professors, which fostered this sense of uh, really what I had been raised in of caring about other faith traditions and caring about just the beautiful ways that God works in the world, um, and their support and confidence in me to be able to share that with others was was really helpful. And then um, it was also, you know, despite difficulties with my running career, um, I continued and actually came back. I actually ended up having like six stress fractures throughout college, so it was quite yeah. a quite an athletic journey. Um, but ended up doing really well. And by the end of my college career became the the captain, um, for, um, for the team and felt so supported also by the other athletes. And, um, even though I had kind of a difficult coaching experience, my teammates became really family and also folks who really gave me the confidence to continue to pursue ministry in ways that I really didn't think that I could or didn't know that I was called to. Um, so having those mentors both on the church and on the the faith side, but also just in the community, it was so mm-hmm. essential for me. That's so beautiful. That's cool. So you, you know, just because you had a hard start didn't mean you have to walk away from those passions because you in fact have completed, is it 50 ultra marathons? Is that, am I reading that right? I have not completed them yet. All I have not done all of them yet. So it's, so kind of how the athletic side went. Um, I, I finished my collegiate career and got into competitive triathlon. So I, I raced the short course draft legal triathlon circuit for a while and got to race internationally, um, as an amateur, but, but did, did well and enjoyed that and then got into Ironman for a while and raced, I think seven halves and three full Ironman races. And then, um, over the pandemic was going through a lot of stuff personally and just needed kind of a new sports adventure and got into ultra marathon, which, um, so I race anything over essentially over 30 miles all on trails And, um, with the work I was doing with OCD realized it was a really cool opportunity to partner and be able to race around the country, but also fundraise for individuals seeking treatment. So I'm not done at all, but I'm in the process of racing, um, 50 ultra marathons in 50 States and in each state fundraising for someone seeking evidence-based treatment for OCD. That is amazing. Oh my gosh. So my like couch to five situation right now seems so minimal, but Hey, it's something. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> I'm closer to the couch side than the five side. If I'm going to truly be honest. <laughs> You're, you know, any amount of, and that was, I mean, I know this isn't our topic for today, <laughs> but that was um, my graduate research the first time around was, um, was reimagining um, running and endurance athletics as a spiritual practice. Mm. And um, I think however far we're going, or if it's walking, if it's running, whatever it is, there is such an element of being outside and connecting with the divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the body mind connection is quite amazing. And when you're out in nature, the mindfulness walking or the mindfulness um, exercise is really quite 
quite powerful. I know that anytime that I'm super stressed or overwhelmed, doing anything physical like that outside definitely is a relief for sure. Some self-care, definitely on the list of self-care activities. Now you um, spoke a little bit about your experience with OC, but I would love to hear a little bit more because you're clearly a high achiever. You're clearly driven and motivated. And when someone thinks of OCD, you think of a lot of debilitating um, uh, struggles. And and so would you be able to share a little bit about your journey um, from, you know, diagnosis and, and going through and discovering, the, you know, your passion and where God's leading you? So it's always so interesting when I tell my life story and, you know, we're talking about this, this whole side with ministry and with cross country and with things like that. And I almost feel like I had two lives running parallel to one another and kind of the OCD life most people didn't know about because I was really, really good at masking. Um, and I was very much miserable while looking like I had it all together for a large majority. We don't know of what that's life. like. Um, no, nobody else does that. You know, put on a brave face <laughs> while they walk into church or work or, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, Katie, that is yeah, super right? relatable like- to everyone. <laughs> So that was, I mean, that was, that was my experience. And I mean, actually thinking about what I was going through, I mean, I can remember signs and symptoms of OCD as early age, as age eight. And, um, I used to, one of the first things that I remember was being in third grade and having a teacher talk about the sun potentially getting too close to the earth and something bad happening. And, um, a big component of OCD for me has to do with, with over-responsibility and with really, um, taking on and making sure that everyone, not just in my family, but in the world is safe. So as an eight-year-old, and this did not make sense, but it did in my eight-year-old mind, um, I felt like I needed to touch things in a particular order or do things in a particular way so that the sun didn't get too close to the earth um, so that I could protect the entire planet. Um, So that's a lot lot. of pressure um, on an eight-year-old. Yeah. And um, so that was really the first piece. And then as I got older, um, I really started to take responsibility for, for everything. Um, I lost my aunt to cancer and I thought it was my Mm. fault. Um, I thought, you know, if I didn't do things right that, um, or if I wasn't perfectly nice or, um, didn't do things perfectly, that bad things were going to happen. Um, and as I got older, it kind of shifted and, and morphed. Um, I went through phases related to contamination um, and related to checking ovens, stoves, locks, doors. Um, and by the time I hit seminary, it was actually pretty. It was pretty intense. I was um, I was at Candler School of Theology at Emory, and um, I didn't want anyone to know what I was experiencing. And I actually was spending most of my nights where I wasn't sleeping because I was going and checking oven stoves, locks, parking garages, driving back to churches where I was interning to make sure candles were blown out to make sure things wouldn't burn down and it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. my fault. I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. And, um, at the time I shared with, um, a mentor that I thought I might have OCD, um, and was told like, you can't tell anybody no. because you won't pass your psych evaluations for ministry and you're an up and coming ministry leader. You, you, you can't tell oh. anybody that. So I, I didn't, yeah, it was pretty, pretty mm-hmm. awful. So I didn't get treatment. I continued to kind of shove that down despite the fact that I was miserable and probably by that point doing 
12 plus hours of compulsions a day, but masking and making sure nobody had any idea how much of my life it was taking um, and didn't get help. Um, and then actually went into my first role in ministry um, as an academy chaplain for 2,700 awesome kiddos from different faith traditions in Atlanta. Um, that was very much a passion for me. And because I wasn't treated, my OCD exploded and latched onto everything. Yeah, because the responsibility, the natural responsibility of that role of connecting and supporting and walking alongside students is heavy in and of itself, let alone when you're struggling with these, you know, the the thoughts, the ruminating and overpowering thoughts. That would be really, really hard. Goodness. Were you able to seek support? And so not for a long time. Um, my first few years in that role, um, it, things were getting really challenging, but I was particularly, um, I particularly felt shame because a lot of the intrusive thoughts and things that I was experiencing, like, like most of OCD latched onto the things that were the most important to mm-hmm. me. So I worried, you know, what if, what if I'm actually harmful to my students? What if I'm not a good chaplain? What if I'm, um, saying something inappropriate and forgetting about it? What if I hit someone walking down the hallway and forgot? What if I ran over someone with my car and just don't remember? I mean, it was all sorts of things related to morality, but also to spiritual life. And mm-hmm. I thought very much if I shared that, that they wouldn't want me to be a chaplain for, for kids. So how could I mm-hmm. possibly get treatment? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was very fortunate a few years in that um, I, I got to a low enough point that I, I did finally seek treatment um, and was very lucky to find an OCD specialist um, who, it, which isn't always common. It's something with the IOCDF we talk about a lot. It can take folks on average 17 years to get effective treatment, which is absurd, mm-hmm. but found someone who was knowledgeable in exposure and response prevention. And started engaging in, in treatment for the first time, um, which I'm happy to go into. But do want to note, um, I think the interesting piece of my story there is I got better really quickly with treatment. Yeah. But I thought, oh, OCD is gone. I never have to worry about it ever again. Okay, great. I'm I'm set. And that's that's and not how did that go? Not, <laughs> not well. Not well. And, oh. So and I tell folks all the the time, you know, it's I now believe it's a part of my life and we get to approach our life each and every day so that it doesn't impact us. Mm -hmm. It doesn't impact my life, but I have OCD and that's that's what it is. Um, But what ended up happening, I I, was no longer it was like, great, everything's fine and had back to back to back tragedies um, in the school that I was really responsible for caring for where I lost individuals to mental health struggles that I was very close with. Um, and I was doing funerals for teachers and funerals for kids. And my OCD from the responsibility standpoint ended up latching on. And um, I started blaming myself in tangible mm-hmm. ways for different tragedies and actually got to the point where I was so concerned that what if different things are my fault that I was serving as a chaplain all day and getting home and almost calling the police on myself for crimes I hadn't committed just in case somehow something bad in the community was my fault. Wow. I think, I think it's important to note that these were real for you, even though they weren't logical, they didn't make sense. They weren't, um, true or accurate in your body and in your mind, they felt extremely real. Mm -hmm. And that's 
would be very intense. Imagine feeling the weight and the responsibility of someone's life and a community tragedy on one, on you, on one person. And, and I just think, how, how, how did you continue on? How, what, what pulled you through? Because those must've been dark moments. I look back and uh, folks ask me, how did you still get up? And, and I really, I really don't know. And I think there is a God aspect in that too, of, because I, I just don't know how I would have possibly mm-hmm. done that. Um, on my own, I worked through this entire period, um, despite being as sick as I was and no one had any idea, which for better, or for worse. Um, but it's, it did. I mean, OCD is ego dystonic. It's it's not logical. It opposes the things that we that we care so deeply about. Mm-hmm. But it felt real. Um, and I had so much shame because I felt like I was this person that everyone saw as this happy school chaplain, you know, saving and working with kids. And I, that internally, I felt like there was something different going on. And it just it was so it was so tough. But thankfully, really the shift for me was um, went back into treatment with the therapist who very much um, had helped me that first time. And it was a tough road. Um, I was so entrenched because of the compulsions that I was engaging in, both physical and mental, for such a long time that it was hard to kind of break apart some of the beliefs that I had. Um, But I got better. I really did. I got better. And when I got better, I didn't want to be quiet about my story anymore. Um, And that was a huge shift for me. I was watching students from all different faith backgrounds that were fearful of speaking up about their mental health and faith communities. And I felt like I had an obligation as their chaplain to say, actually, these past few years, I've been seeking mental health treatment at night and you can too, and it's okay. Um, and that was terrifying. It was, it was, what are they going to think of me in this public role? My mentor told me I would lose everything in ministry. And um, I didn't. It was the opposite of everything I thought. I started hearing from families, oh, Chaplain K, we can, we can finally tell you what's going on. Can we tell you about our child's diagnosis? Oh, and how do we talk to their pastor, their rabbi, their imam? It was nothing like what I had expected at all. That's so beautiful. So I want to know, what does it look like? What does getting better look like? Ah, um, Would it be helpful to talk about treatment a little bit for OCD? I think so. I think because this is not something, there's so much, I don't know if stigma is the right word around misunderstanding of OCD. I think it's become the word and the terminology has become very flippant. And so I think that it would be really helpful, I think, for you to be able to describe it a bit more detail. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, my biggest pet peeve is when OCD is used as an adjective or used as a joke or a cute quirk. Um, and I always tell folks it's not because I can't take a joke or because I can't find humor. It's it's literally because it's preventing, every time we use it in that way, it's preventing individuals from knowing what OCD is and seeking treatment that very much could save their life. Um, mm. And OCD is absolutely debilitating with obsessions that oppose everything someone believes in. OCD latches on to everything they care about and really twists it, making them wonder, what if I'm a bad person? What if I'm in danger? What if I'm a danger to someone else? Um, anything like that. And it, it really, then there are compulsions that we do to try to feel better. 
And some of those, yes, are physical, like what you see in the media. Um, but a lot of those can be mental as well. That might be ruminating. That might be um, going back over something in your head. That might be um, mental reassurance, mental rituals. Um, and for me, that was a lot of, of my experience. And um, so there are obsessions and compulsions, treatment targets, all of that. So evidence-based treatment for OCD, the current gold standard is exposure and response prevention, which is um, under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. And with that, individuals are exposed to the things that they are the most fearful of while prevented from engaging in the rituals or engaging in the responses. So you're leaning in and it sounds terrifying. It is terrifying. I was going to say, that sounds like an awful day. (laughs) Yeah, it's an awful day. (laughs) You're never like, yeah, it's exposure day. Like, no. (laughs) You're doing the very thing that makes you most uncomfortable and most anxious. And then you're prevented from doing the very thing that makes you feel better. Wow. Oh my gosh. That sounds like a really hard work. It is really hard work and it's life-saving. It is absolutely life-saving. And um, the core of, of treatment is really about embracing uncertainty. And um, individuals with OCD struggle with, with uncertainty. It feels like, well, I have to be certain that I'm a good person or that God is happy with me or um, that nothing bad is going to happen in the world. And It's about embracing uncertainty um, in the sense that every other person on the planet embraces uncertainty, being okay with that, while having radical faith that you can still move forward in a meaningful and beautiful way. Um, And that's, I think there are actually a lot of of ties to faith with that, where I see getting better as it's not that you don't have obsessions anymore. It's not that you don't have intrusive thoughts because... Everybody has intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts are just thoughts, but you don't get quite as stuck. Um, You're able to continue to move towards your values because you can accept uncertainty because you can sit with that level of discomfort where faith, again, is such a huge core of that of saying, yeah, okay, things can be really scary. I feel scared right now, but I have faith in this moment that I can move towards everything meaningful to me. Um, and that's actually, ironically, that's my doctoral research is on reimagining ERP as a spiritual practice across faith traditions. You mentioned that OCD latches onto the things that you're most attached to or you're most connected to. And, and for many people, that's their faith. That's part of who their identity is. And, and, and it can distort what is truth or distort what is, what is, um, what is there. Uh, and so how does one navigate their faith when, when that's who they are? So that's where they want to lean into, but that also triggers so much stress and anxiety with the OCD and and the obsessions. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So this is, this is what I ended up giving kind of my, my life to, um, after the story that I shared with y'all here today, it's, um, I started working in advocating for OCD. And at that point, I really didn't know, um, that for so many individuals, OCD latched on directly to their faith traditions and practices. And when I started advocating, um, I actually started hearing from, um, different clinicians, um, in different parts of the world, because I had taught 
comparative religions forever and worked as an interfaith chaplain and knew ERP really well um, of just folks calling and saying, hey, well, I have this case um, and I wonder what's faith and what's OCD? Can you help us like mm-hmm. pick this apart? And I started to learn um, about what's called religious scrupulosity um, as a subtype of OCD. Um, and it's, I always say, tell folks, um, OCD comes in lots of different flavors. OCD is OCD is OCD. <laughs> the content is irrelevant. It's but, probably as unique as the individuals who experience it, right? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's exactly right. It's going to be, it just shows up in the flavor that is the most important to you. So of course, like you said, it's going to latch on to faith. And I see this in every faith tradition under the sun where individuals start to have obsessions about whether they're faithful enough, whether they're good enough, whether they accidentally committed the unpardonable sin, whether they um, ritually washed appropriately, whether they were totally focused during prayer, whether God is mad at them. I mean, anything related to faith, faith practices kind of comes up. And then the compulsions that individuals engage in are trying to make sure that they're doing everything perfectly, that they're being absolutely faithful. And the tricky part is, Unfortunately, um, a lot of, um, of of ministry leaders might not be aware that that's what's going on because on the surface, it can look like, oh, that person is just praying a lot or they are so <laughs> deep in their faith. Yes. This is awesome. Or but they're reality, serving or they're showing yeah. up and they're volunteering. They're part of everything, every opportunity to be at the church. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's not, that's actually not why. It's not because they're you know, it, it trying to engage in their faith. It's they're responding to the fear, the guilt, the anxiety, the shame, the urgency of OCD. Um, and I'll, I'll share with folks that when you're doing rituals um, that look like faith in service of OCD, we're actually almost worshiping OCD as opposed mm. to worshiping God. Um, and it's it can be challenging to pick that apart. It can be really scary. Um ERP is really effective, but it can be really tough to lean into things um, that relate to faith that are really scary. Um, And that's actually the work I do full time now. So I work with cases all over the world and help separate um, for individuals and across faith traditions as a chaplain, but also as an OCD specialist, where is faith and where is OCD? And how can we engage in treatment in service of getting back to our faith in a value-driven way, as opposed to continuing to worship the OCD? Mm. Um, and that there's so many nuances to this, but the, the biggest thing I'll tell folks with that, and especially for ministry leaders in terms of picking this apart, is thinking, what is what is the function of what someone is doing? What is the function of what they're engaging in? Is it in service of meaning? and connection and joy with God? Or is it, I am so scared to not do this thing. It feels so Mm -hmm. urgent. I feel like I have to, or something horrific is going to happen. And that's a good way to start to, to parse that out a little bit of, well, are we doing this in in favor of connecting with the divine or um, responding to OCD? Mm. For those who are listening, who are trying to navigate this, they're not specialists. They're they may or may not have lived experience with with OCD and, and anxiety, uh, and and it can be really overwhelming. People don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to make it worse. They don't want to step outside of their role and function as care provider, pastor, supporter, and 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 so what are some 
ways or that we can be inclusive or that we can be supportive or that we can provide that wraparound care without stepping into an area that we're not trained for? Yeah. Oh, that is such a good question. Um, And I have resources I definitely will offer for the podcast as well. Um, But I think from the the ministry perspective, um, one is always affirming the individual and the struggle that they're experiencing. But if you even, even based on this small amount that you're learning right now from this podcast, if you're like, hmm, someone might be doing something in service of OCD. If someone is continuing to come and ask you questions related to reassurance, related to if they've done something right in their faith practices, reassurance or accommodating in any way is actually feeding the disorder. So what I would really encourage folks in ministry to do, it doesn't mean that you have to, that you have to treat or that you have to diagnose. But if you have that little piece that's like, hmm, this person has asked me for reassurance a lot, or it feels like they're really engaging from a space of fear, or they're doing things in a really repetitive way, it might be a really great opportunity for you to connect with a local OCD specialist or a local affiliate to see if you might be able to collaborate or might be able to make a referral. Um, I never think it's harmful to ask that person, why are you doing this? And is it does it feel challenging for you right now from a place of love to be able to say, if they do say, yeah, this is really hard for me right now, I think I might have some ideas. Is it possible that we could talk to someone? Is it possible that we could talk to a professional? Um, Uh, it's, you know, there's so many, I work with the International OCD Foundation. We have local affiliates in every single state um, and uh, Canada, their stuff is branching out as well. And um, there, but we also have a great resource page on the IOCDF website where we specifically have resources for clergy on what clergy can do, how you might be able to recognize in your congregation, how to show up, we also have a faith and OCD conference with a track for for um, for ministry leaders of all types to be able to think about. Well, how do we how do we show up for folks who might be navigating? Um, and I mean, I'll put out there too. If you are thinking this person might have OCD, I'm not sure. How do I respond? That is actually what I work with faith communities on all the time. I train faith communities in OCD and religious scrupulosity send me an email and say, Hey, Katie, this is, this is what I'm seeing. How in the world do I respond? Or what do you think? And I, I really don't Careful, mind. You I, might get a lot of emails, Katie. <laughs> I, get, I get probably hundreds a day already. And I do my best to get through stuff in a timely manner, but I do. I mean, I get this from folks all the time of even, you know, I, from every faith community under the sun. Hey, I see someone in my congregation doing this. What do I do? Please reach out. And if I can't answer it, I'll help you find someone mm-hmm. that will. Awesome. When thinking of how prevalent this is in our communities and congregations, um, like you said, you went years without anyone knowing. And so there is likely, if we have a congregation of a couple hundred people, then there is likely someone in our congregation that does struggle with this. How common is this? How common is OCD? How is it important for, for clergy or people, pastors or, or faith leaders to be able to, to know about OCD? Yeah. So statistically, we say that about 2% of the population has OCD, but it is greatly underdiagnosed in part because many clinicians or even specialists who think they know OCD don't necessarily and have trouble recognizing 
obsessions and compulsions that they aren't familiar with or have trouble recognizing internal compulsions. Um, so vastly underdiagnosed, but but regardless, there are, I can pretty much guarantee you, you have a handful, at the very <laughs> least, a handful of folks in your congregation who are navigating this. And especially because they're involved in a faith community, there's a pretty good chance that it's latching onto their faith because that's what's important to them, because they're showing up in your community. So it is important. Um, and one of the things that I've, I struggle with is I actually think this is something that should be taught in, in seminaries. Um, so I know that's a piece I'm working with a psychologist on right now to do some seminary courses. And we're also working on developing a measure specific for clergy. So you could have a really quick tested like five question thing that it for you. Yeah. So we're hoping we're trying to get a grant for this right now so we could test it and do a whole study around it. The idea would be able to have clergy have a really quick measure to say, or to have ministry leaders have a quick measure to say, Ooh, is this what someone is experiencing? Um, But it's absolutely something that, that should be taught that we should be aware of. And that even in the simplest form that we should be mindful of, why someone is doing the practices they're doing. Are they doing them in a different way than they did before? Do you have a group of people who are doing things to an extreme? And if you ask them why, is it because they feel fearful? That's a really good place to start and mm-hmm. to start to think about, hmm, well, maybe there might be something different going on here than, than the faith piece. Yeah. And I want ministry leaders to know that encouraging someone to engage in treatment, even if it's leaning into scary stuff, I have never once seen someone um, then, I don't know, shift away from their faith or decide that it's really actually been the opposite. It's individuals reconnect with their faith or move towards their faith in value-driven ways because they actually have space to worship God as opposed to being so dictated by the fear of the disorder. Looking back, I wonder if, if you could write yourself a letter if you could send yourself a voicemail back when, you know, at the beginning stages, I don't know if you, the beginning was when you were eight or the beginning when you were, or the beginning is when you were first sitting in the, in the pews of that, that UCC church. But if you could write yourself a letter or send yourself a voicemail, what would you tell your younger self? Oh, I love this question. Um, so much. Um, I talk about this with clients actually a lot with their OCD journey. Um, there would be um, definitely something to the effect of there, there will be parts of your journey that will be really, really challenging, um, but you are enough. You were created to do beautiful things. And even in the midst of the moments that seem really challenging and really broken, Um, God will give you an opportunity to create beauty out of that brokenness. Um, And I think just just that knowledge for my younger self to know that every obsession, that every compulsion, um, as challenging as it is, that there will be an opportunity to turn pain into purpose and brokenness into beauty in profound ways for myself and for my faith, but also for, for a lot of other amazing folks around me. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Katie, so much for being here, sharing your story and and being willing to serve. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you are interested in learning more about OCD or connecting with Katie, make sure to check out those show notes. We'll have all the links you need in there. 
for this, during this whole Mental Health Awareness Month, we are speaking to those with lived experience, as I think it's important to listen and learn from those who have truly walked in the shoes of those who suffer from mental health. This is both a self-reflective moment and an opportunity to apply what we've learned, regardless of where you're at. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you did, are you able to write a review? This actually really helps people find the podcast more easily and, and, and tells others how it's been helpful for you. Well, I appreciate you so much. Thanks for connecting. I hope you have a fantastic week.